good evening. You see me glowing. It's not holiness, it's, it's sweat glistening on my forehead. Summer's coming, I guess. Huh? <laughs> I need some power. Alright, so take the Bibles and go with me. Psalm 128. Psalm 128. So I'm going to begin with what you've grown used to hearing me say in various contexts, I know. But the goal is to ride the horse, and you can, well, how does that go after that? You can fall off on either side, all right? But the goal is to stay up on it and ride it. So in other words, as it comes to our study tonight, we're looking for balance. And when it comes to this particular passage and the subject matter of it, it's easy for us to get out of balance. So I'm going to talk tonight from both sides a little bit, and we'll try to finish like squarely up on the horse where we're trying to end up. So um, recently, uh, let me add this into the conversation too. So we're reaching backwards a little bit to the goal is to stay on the horse, not fall off on either side, looking for balance. But also go back to one of the Bible studies we had here on Sunday nights where we talked about our theology, and our theology needs to work. Okay? It needs to be at work, but it also needs to be workable. In other words, we need to be grounded in real truth rather than just some of the stuff that's out there. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about, and this is the fall off on either side. Uh, one of the churches that I pastored was doing some renovation work, and uh, we had hired, as a church, we had hired one of the men in the church who had his own contracting business, and uh, several of his workers were also members of our church, and so we kind of kept it in-house, and I walked in one day to the uh, area of the building that was being renovated, and it was just the supervisor, who was a church member, and uh, so I walked up to him, his name was Bill, and I said, hey, how's it going, and we kind of got into a conversation. And uh, not too long into that conversation, he stopped and he said, you know, he said, I really need some, some of your help, some counsel. I said, uh, okay, what kind of help do you need? And he said, um, I, I have this issue with my wife. <laughs> I said, Okay. And the deal, and the long and short of it was that they were having some financial struggles, and his wife was a church-going person, and she had found a, an alleged preacher on TV. I'm choosing my words carefully here. <laughs> and uh, if I told you his name, you probably, some of you would probably recognize him. I'm not sure that he's one of the main, well, he is mainstream because he's got a program on satellite TV, but um, so they had gotten, she had gotten into this mix with this guy, and um, so one of his sticks was, if you'll just send me some money, and he had a particular amount in mind, then I will send you a prayer cloth. And we know that this prayer cloth, no, his name was not Bob Nickel, just. That's out of the bag. Uh, sorry, I don't know why that just 
So somehow that gave it more credibility. So the way this scenario progressed is his this guy's wife sent in the money and got back about a one-inch square <laughs> prayer cloth and an encouragement that if she would put right down her prayer requests and attach a check for X number of dollars and send it back to him, then he would pray for her and for them specifically. Well, in the long and short of it, this had been going on for months, one letter after another, to the point that they were just about to go bankrupt. They had, she had spent nearly all of their money on that. Okay, so remember, our theology needs to work. But also, the goal is to stay on the horse, not fall off on either side. That lady fell off on one side. All right, I'm going to come back in a little bit. We'll talk about the prosperity gospel that's out there in our day. Uh, but let's go off the other side of the horse. If, if prosperity gospel is one side away from good theology that works, what might be on the other side of the horse? What's the other theological extreme? Say that again? I say sacrifice. That's right. I'm going to put an old, old, old historical church term on it, okay? That is asceticism. Ascetics, right? Um, but in this one, the, the point is many of these, the early church monks, the desert fathers, sometimes they're called, uh, because of the mainstreaming of Christianity, many of those monks decided that the best way for them to live their Christian life was to evacuate from society and to go out into the deserts of Egypt and you know, the Middle East. And there they would do their personal religious service before God. And the intent of that was that they would become more holy and not spotted by the world. Okay, So I'm going to say that they fell off on the other side of the horse. But the goal is to stay on the horse. We're going to come back to that stuff in just a little bit. But here's the truth I want you to get. Failure to maintain balance in our Christian life, in our spiritual life, sets us up for failure in that life. So we're shooting for balance in our Christian lives. Which brings us to this particular psalm. Psalm 128. We're now nine deep in our Psalms of Ascent study. And uh, just as a quick reminder, it's been a little while since we've all been together. So let me just remind you, these are psalms that the pilgrims sang as they made their way towards Jerusalem for one of those three great feasts every year. Uh, the early Jewish uh, Hebrew people, once these psalms were written and they were sung along the way, they were gathered into one of the earliest psalm books of the Hebrew people. And that's why we know them as the Psalms of Ascent. Each one of them gives us some insight into spiritual formation, discipleship, and becoming more what God wants us to be and more like Christ in our life. And so Psalm 128 is where we find ourselves. Let's go ahead and read the whole thing first, 
And then we'll come back and read pieces of it as we work our way through. Six verses long. Somebody who doesn't mind reading, please read Psalm 128. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall, be the, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Okay. Thanks. So let's let's do the structural work first. All right. I really try to not overdo this for us because this is really kind of the technical work when it comes to evaluating, looking at these psalms and studying them. But it helps us to understand the structure because often in these psalms the structure is what drives the message. All right. So structurally, as you look at this. What is the big idea? If you roll it down to one big idea in one verse, where would you find it? Verse 1, right? It's the summary statement. It's the umbrella term or umbrella statement. Everything else falls underneath it. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. And then he echoes it. Remember, this is Hebrew poetry. And so one of the ways that Hebrew poetry uh, doubles down on whatever their point is, is they'll say it a different way. So he says it a different way in the second part of verse 1. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. And then you can supply, blessed is the one, in parentheses, and then finish, who walks in his way. That's the big idea. Let's stop for a second and evaluate. What does the word blessed mean? Happy? What translations do you have? How many of them say blessed? All of them. Right? Anybody not have blessed as the first one there? Alright, so you, you don't? Mine says joyful. Okay. What version is that? NLT. NLT, okay. So blessed, y'all said happy, she said joyful. Okay, if we were to use this from a New Testament word... Oh, I don't know, let's go to the Beatitudes, right? The word blessed there, when I was teaching through those, I know that that was way back in like September, so nobody should have to remember that. But blessed in the Beatitudes is a term that actually means to be envied, or better, to be congratulated. So the state of that person's life is such that others should look at them and go, well, congratulations, you achieved such and such, or you have such and such, right? Joyful is part of it. Happy is part of it. But it really teaches this deeper truth that, that there's something about that person's life that makes it whole. I'm going to come back to that statement in just a few minutes. But before we move on from that, what does our society say is a blessed life? In other words, I want you to use the term and pull it into our society, not just Christian society, but our society as a whole. What are the things or the, the markers that people of our day would look at somebody's life and say, oh, they're blessed? Well, successful. Successful? No hardships. No hardships, just life's apart. Right? What else? Healthy. Healthy. Status. Status. Okay. 
Fruitful. Fruitful, good. So yeah. those are the things that our society says that's a blessed life. Okay, we might throw the terms around and say that's a charmed life. Seems like I preached a sermon with that in there somewhere. So in our society, how do we try to create that condition? Now I'm moving beyond the description of what it is and trying to say, okay, so how do we get there? Not, not the biblical thing yet. We're going to talk about that. We're just talking about our world around us. Because I believe that our world around us has no idea what it means to stay on the horse, spiritually speaking. So they look in all kinds of places for all kinds of things. So how does our world try to create a charm or a blessed life? Through sin. Through sin? Work, 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 toil, 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 toil. They should read Ecclesiastes, yes, right? Exactly. <laughs> I think vision. People have visions of what they want to accomplish. Okay. It is all about me. Dreams. Mm -hmm. okay. All about me. All about me. Okay, education, selling out to education in many cases. Okay, money, getting that money. Just keep making it, right? You're spending the money. Totally. I had a guy ask me one time, he showed me his retirement amount in his, uh, his uh, annuity. He said, you think that's enough to retire on? I said, well, how long will you plan on living? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm dull. I told you this morning I'm pretty dull, but that seems self-evident to me. Yes, ma'am. It seems like if people want to live a blessed life, they have to compromise their standards continually over and over again to not okay. fight with people, to not give in, I mean, to not <coughs> And today they want to take the path of least resistance. Uh, 30, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, you worked from sun up to sundown. Yeah. People don't do that anymore. Yeah. Now it's four-day work weeks, barely eight hours a day. Yeah. But they want a higher standard for less work. That doesn't make sense. Right. And they want everybody to just endorse it, I would add to that. Just, yes. It's just what, whatever is my deal, don't just endorse it and it'll be okay. We'll all be happy that way. That's our society. Okay? All right, so the psalmist has something to say about that. And I always like to pause like we just did for us to make sure that we always keep one eye outside of the walls of the church. Because we have to be able to know the world that we're called into to take the good news of Jesus Christ. Because when we step out of the walls of this church, we run into a world full of people who have a different value system and a different theology when it comes to living than we do. And so we need to always keep one eye out there and another eye in here, and our third eye always trained on the Lord. Right. Well, maybe you don't have three eyes, but you should grow a third one. <laughs> All right, so let's go ahead and move through, continuing with the uh, structural evaluation here. I always said that the second part of verse 1 is a poetic mirroring of the first part. And actually, it is a further explanation of what it means to fear the Lord. I kind of highlighted this in the second service this morning that we were talking about this a little bit here. Um, because I think that sometimes some church people, uh, and maybe, I don't know, I haven't really looked at it to know if it's, if it's more of a denominational um, conditioning or if it's just, uh, or what it is. But there are those Christian people who are scared to death of God. Um, I've talked to a lot of those people 
And it, it's almost as if their perception of God is, if I, if I get out of line and I take one step, step out of line, he's going to squash me like a roach and take great pleasure in doing it. And um, <coughs> well, what would you say to a person like that? Okay to drop the ball. I like that. To quote a lady that uh, worked at a, a compliance level to somebody else on the phone who was talking about how they had done something, I would say that the person who just is afraid of God, we could just say, wrong, wrong, wrong. <laughs> With all the love that we can, with all the love that we can muster for them, it's just wrong. Is that who God is? Just waiting for somebody to step out of line. That's what He wants. He wants us to come to that surrendered point and allow Him to handle it. Yeah, we have to acknowledge that we step out of line. That part of it, right? That's what He wants. He wants us to acknowledge that. Because it's, that's when we find heaven, that's when we find grace, that's when we find forgiveness, that's when we find mercy, all those things, right? So take heart. You don't have to be afraid of God. But he does say fear God. What does that mean? Respect. I heard that. Reverence. So we need a workable definition for tonight on what it means to fear God. Remember His holiness. Okay. I'll buy it. That fits with the reverence part of it, I think. So I think that's a component. Let's hold on to that. Life in dwell with the Holy Spirit. Connection. Okay, connected with the Holy Spirit who's indwelling us. So what does that do for us? That indwelling Holy Spirit as it relates to how we respond to God. Relational, personal, extremely personal, and now we'll pull in what Liz said, right? That also means you can't get away with anything, right? I mean, my kids got away with a lot of stuff when I wasn't around. But God's always around. Matter of fact, he's more than around. He's inside. It's not like we can do things without him being aware of it. Right? It's his authority, I think. The authority? You know, authority. We... Feared our parents too. Okay. But I loved them at the same time. But right. it was it, it's it's not a fear of not wanting to be with them. It was a fear of loving them, but I'm going to do what they said. Okay. Or know the consequences. Or know the consequences. So I think the consequence part of that, you know, it may be one of the again falling off of the horse. Is the whole fear of God thing where people are afraid of what he's going to do to them because he's just waiting to squash them. There's enough truth in, the, in this that God does allow us and sometimes forces the issue to pay the consequences of our rebellion. Okay? I know that. I've lived that in my life, and many of you have too. To intentionally walk away from God brings consequences. And God, in his holiness and in his righteousness, will allow us to walk away and then have to deal with the consequences. Okay? But that's different than God just waiting for somebody to jump out of line and then hammer them. Okay? So fear God. Let me see if I can pull it down for this 
working definition tonight. For us to fear God takes all of those realities about who God is, and it brings them to bear on how we relate with Him. Not just relate with Him, but how we live our life every day. It's living under the awareness of who God is and responding appropriately to that. You know where I hit that? Second part of verse 1. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his way. We take what Liz was just saying and apply it into this. The reason many of us as kids, maybe all of us as kids, uh, respected our parents enough to do right was because there was a healthy sense of fear that if we went wrong, uh, that there was going to be some kind of consequence for that. So it's not being afraid of the consequence. It's not that God's just waiting to zap us. It is the awareness that we have of who he is, his love for us, his holiness, his involvement with us, all of those things that causes us, in relationship with him, to walk in such a way, to live our life in such a way, that God looks at us and says, that's what I had in mind in the first place. Yes, sir. I read something about a year ago. It was, it was talking about authority. And specifically, it was talking about how all authority is derived from something that's senior to that. And that, you know, especially with us, that it's derived from God placing people into various positions of leadership. Yeah. And so in a lot of ways, what you're talking about to me is the recognition of not only God's authority, but the authority of other folks that God's put in our lives and in our paths. And as well as the authority that he's given us over other people in, that are in our charge. Right. And that, you know, to walk in his ways is to recognize that the authority that's above us and to recognize the, the importance of the authority that we have over other people okay. and treat them the way that we would have uh, the, in the, the way that we like God to treat us. Okay. All right. I think that's well said. All right. So it, it gets down into where we live our lives in every way and in every day. This walking with him, this fearing the Lord is a, it's a mindset, it's an attitude, it's a heart condition. It's all of those things rolled into one that we live our lives in such a way that God would look to us and say, that's what I had in mind. Okay, that's the kind of life that I had in mind for you. Okay? That's kind of a working definition of righteousness in the Old Testament. So, with that in mind, let's take another step here, because that's verse 1. Verses 2 through 4, as far as we're still in structure, but we're about out of it, so stay with me. Verses 2 through 4 give us an amplification of what the blessings are what it means to be blessed, and then the psalmist says, let me give you a couple of examples. And so we'll look at those in a little more detail in just a second, verses 2 through 4. And then verses 5 and 6 are a priestly benediction. Remember that these are psalms of ascent. And we don't really know the exact setting for when this was written or the circumstances for it. Uh, but the picture seems to be that as these pilgrims are making their way up, it's a, it's a worship Psalm. Look at how blessed we are because of what God does, and look what we can look forward to as we continue to walk in His ways. Verses 5 and 6 is as if the priest then at the temple picks it up and says, The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. This is an additional kind of blessing. And then verse 6 is even another one. May you see your children's children. And if I was writing this today, I would add, may you see your children's children and leave them behind when you go home. <laughs> but then I'd just spend a week with mine. All right. 
let me let me back off of that and get back to scripture. Right? <laughs> Peace be upon Israel. So let's talk about the blessings for a minute. We're going to come back to the stand on the horse, so stay with me. Verse 2, give, uh, verses 2, well, verse 2 gives us personal blessing. It's a point of being personally blessed. Somebody read verse 2, please. You worked hard and deserve all you got from us. That's the message. Well, it is concise, and that particular case. So, uh, oh, well, there's more. Okay. Enjoy the blessing. Revel in the goodness. Okay. That's North Carolinian. Okay. One more time, and then we're going to get somebody else to read. Nothing personal. Nothing personal, but I want to hear the whole thing together. You want that version? Yes, yeah, yeah, no, that version, yeah. You work hard and deserve all you've got done. Enjoy the blessing, revel in the goodness. Okay. All right, before we read something else, those of you who were here, when last week, week before last, when we did Psalm 127, uh, one of the things we talked about, do you remember Psalm 127? One of the things we talked about is the reality that, you know, if we step in and just start doing a bunch of stuff in the name of God, God's not obligated to honor that, right? Unless the Lord builds the house for those who build it labor in vain. So read the first part of that again, the very first phrase. You worked hard and deserve all you got from Okay, so how do those two fit? Now before you answer that, they do. So before you answer that, let's hear somebody a different translation read verse 2. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy and it shall be well with you. Okay? All right? So what's the personal blessing here? You get what you work for. Mm -hmm. There's a precondition. Okay? The precondition is who walks in his way. That's right. So, if you walk, in his way, you won't take off on your own, building the house, building the city, planting the vineyard. Right. If you walk in his way, then the blessing that you will get will come from God because you are in his way. Exactly. And that's a great summarization of these two psalms that scholars tell us must go together. Okay? Because if you just take one as opposed to the other one, then you get a partial truth, right? But the, the umbrella part, who walks in his ways, who fears the Lord, the first part of that verse, that's what sets it in place. That's why Peterson can say, as he's given a paraphrase of that, that you have what's coming to you. Because the, the presupposition is that you're where you're supposed to be. That the work you're doing is done in order to honor God and under the umbrella of the fear of God and those kind of things, right? So these two, it's, it's interesting to me that the way these two fit together and the way they came together in the, uh, in the book of the Psalms and especially in the Psalms of Ascent is such. Let me just add a little piece to that. Uh, this, these two are the two wisdom psalms that are in the Psalms of Ascent, okay? They're different varieties, and I'm not going to go into all that and bore you to death, but the reality is these two are written specifically at the point of wisdom. That's why, as I was reading through this, 
And I'll try to highlight it as we work through it. That there's a lot of Ecclesiastes in these two Psalms. Alright, so let's just go ahead and jump a little bit further into that. The key phrase is the final clause of verse 2. In this particular blessing, the personal blessing, it says, and it shall be well with you. The, the language comes together here to talk about a, a, a general truth, a general satisfaction with life. Walking in the fear of the Lord, in His way, brings a satisfaction. Who said joyful? You said joyful a minute ago, right? That's where the joyful comes in. Because when you walk with God and you live in fear of Him in the healthiest possible sense, then that puts you in, I call it, living in the channel of His power is there, his direction is there, his grace is there, and it's living life as God designed for us to live. And so this psalm of worship is trumpeting that, and it's saying a personal point of blessing is when this happens. The word, by the way, that we kind of want to pull in on this probably, not that it's here, ex except at the very end, is the word shalom, which means more than just the absence of conflict. It means a full, complete life. It's life as God designed it to be. Shalom. It's fullness. It's peace is part of that, to be sure. But it's not just the absence of conflict. It's life as God intended. Okay? So that's the personal blessing that we find in verse 2. And this is where I go back to Ecclesiastes some and say, okay, so what we're finding the writer of Ecclesiastes saying is I tried work and I tried pleasure and I tried partying and I tried all of those kind of things and I did not find what I was looking for. But today, as we saw in chapter 10, and we will see as we go forward, he begins to say, but here's where I find meaning in life. And it's in the fear of the Lord. It's in walking in his ways. It's with wisdom, as we saw. Okay, now... Let's go to the next one, which is verse 3. He just got through explaining a little bit, amplifying, if you will, illustrating what personal or what blessing we get on a personal level. Now he takes it to the family level. Somebody read verse 3. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Her children will be like olive shoots around your table. Can you tell that this is poetic? Let's do this. Guys... If you haven't been married, and if you haven't had children, and you still give your wife Mother's Day cards, <laughs> this year, instead of buying a card, make one yourself and write on it, you are a fruitful vine. <laughs> and then just know probably before you give her that card you should call Dr. Nickel or me and make an appointment to see <laughs> he will see you at the hospital and I will see you. <laughs> if it's not too late <laughs> or we will say good talks over your you are a fruitful body. <laughs> yeah, no, the sheep stuff is with the kids. That's a good what is he saying? Your wife will be like a fruitful vine. She does what she's supposed to. 
Okay? Okay, right? So clearly there is the... Uh, remember that Jewish society, especially Old Testament Jewish society, very family-oriented, very clannish in that they went by family names, they, you know, living out, it was a tough existence, and so families needed children, not just to work the land or just to do the kind of things that they needed in order to survive as a family. They also needed uh, children for survival, for strength, for protection, and those kind of things. And so there is this part, one of the reasons that we find some of these big um, stories throughout Scripture, even in the New Testament, uh, about people who couldn't have children was, you know, it was, for a family, it was a dangerous economic thing. But it also evidenced, they believe, of God's blessing on them. So that's the picture here. But it goes even beyond that, and I want to try to be very rated G in the way I say this. So let me just say that this phrase is also used in the Song of Solomon. And so you can go read the Song of Solomon and figure it out for yourself, all right? So here's, here's the picture. The picture, and let's go ahead and add the children into this, right? So the next part of that verse, your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Oh, I forgot something I wanted to say about the previous one, so let me go back to that. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine... And then there's a throwaway phrase, or it seems like a throwaway phrase. What does it say? In the very heart of your house. What? In the very heart of your house. In the very heart of your house. I like that translation. All right, I want to know what the message is on that part of it. Verse. Just that part. Well, just read the whole thing. Your wife will bear children as a vine bearing grapes. Your household lush as a vineyard. Okay, stop right there. Okay. So, by the way, this is one of the values of looking at different passages, I mean, different translations as you're studying, right, to kind of get, get this multifaceted view of what he's saying. The picture seems to be here, not just is the husband blessed because he has a wife who is like a fruitful vine. This last phrase talks about her fulfillment. Within your house is the translation that I have. And the picture that it pushes out there is that as these, okay, now I'm going to pull a little New Testament into this. I know that's dangerous, but it's, it's, this is truth, all right? We find it even in the Old Testament. When the spiritual leader of the home is living his life in the fear of the Lord, there's a blessing that comes to the household as a whole. And so this kind of points to that. It's not really saying exactly that, but it does point to that. And the emphasis is that not only is the family blessed with these children, but there's something about the blessing of God in the heart. That's what you said, right? In the heart of the home, in the heart of the family. So we're starting to stack up lots of blessings here uh, for what it comes down to is just walking with the Lord. But now we go to the children part of it. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. I think that that's relatively self-explanatory. So let me just underscore that there is this idea of prosperity. Okay. Now I want you to listen closely. Listen with both ears now from where we started. Remember that I said the prosperity gospel is what evidence of falling off a horse. Okay? But the blessing here 
now begins to take on this picture, this sound of prosperity. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine. Your children will be like olive shoots around the table. There's a, there's a ringing of prosperity in this blessing that he's describing here. So let's finish this out and then we'll come back to that. Uh, so how do you summarize verses 2, 3, and 4? Like a, it's like a perfect system with no wasted effort. As you walk in the Lord's way and work hard, you water and nurture your wife and your family. And in turn, you know, your wife feeds you, provides for you, and you look at your children and have a future promise of benefits and uh, prosperity. Well said. Well said. So I don't want to add anything to that, but I want to add something to that. All right? <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want us to take what he just said for verses 2, 3, and 4, and then it just ramps it up a notch, verses 5 and 6. The priest's blessing on them takes what was just said for us, and it pushes it to the national stage. Right? So not only is it when we walk with the Lord and walk in the fear of the Lord, not only is there personal benefit and there's familial benefit, but for the children of Israel, this priest, in his response to them, says there is a national benefit on top of So let me just stop for a minute and consider the times of our nation and ask the question, where's God in that? Now, I'm going to just say, this is not an appropriate time for us to play ain't it awful. You know what ain't it awful means? It's where we just sit back and wring our hands and just look at everything. Oh, look at the state of our, our country. Oh, ain't it awful. Oh, look, at, look at the state of our finances. Ain't it awful. We could just sit there all day long and play, ain't it awful. Instead of that, let's just go to the point of the song. If we are concerned about the health of our country, let's pull it back a little bit and let's start looking at the health of our families. And let's pull it back a little bit and let's start looking at the health of us as individuals. And let's pull it back a little bit and ask the question, how am I, how are we, how is our country walking in the fear of the Lord? Well, that's another sermon series probably. So let me come back and we'll finish it. So how do you get those benefits, those blessings? It's easy. That's tongue-in-cheek, just so you know. You just walk in the fear of the Lord. That's all. You walk in His ways. Yes, sir? I don't think I've heard the word yet tonight, but discipline comes to mind that we have to allow ourselves, number one, to be subjected to discipline, whether it's our family, as we previously talked about, or fearing the Lord and knowing there's consequences. And, you know, that consequence to me is... Uh, we, we, we know, we instinctively know what's right and we know what's wrong. That doesn't mean we always make the right decision, but, uh, but I believe the Holy Spirit plays on our conscience and he tells us quickly. Yes, he does. And therefore we are disciplined at that point when, uh, when our conscience speaks to us. That's right. Good work. And hopefully that leads, leads to asking for forgiveness. It's a good word. Let me, let me flesh that out just a tad for you. Uh, when I was coming out of my drug use time, and I talked about that 
when I came, I'm not going to go back into it. I just want to tell you one of the things that God used to help me out of that. One of the things that I learned in the process of all that was that there is a very distinct culture that drug use and drug addiction operates in. And the deeper I got into that drug culture, the more acceptable drug use was. And the more acceptable it was, the more frequent it became. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So what had to happen for me, and I didn't realize this, it was not like an overnight awareness for me. <coughs> I used Teresa, you know that story. And then because I wanted to be with her, I started hanging around with her, which meant I had to hang around with her weird church friends. <laughs> and, and the more I hung around with them, the less I hung around with my drug friends. And so what finally had to happen for me to finally break that, that chain in my life was when God, and this is, this was months and months after I stopped with the drug use, but it was still an infection, if you will, in my thinking. And so finally when God called us to go to school, and I quit my job and we moved to, uh, to Plainview. This was actually a couple of years after coming out of that. I moved to a town where I didn't know anybody. And that's when God gave me that final release from that mental infection that I had about drug use. Because as long as I lived in Odessa, I knew where I could go get something if I wanted something. But I moved to a whole new place, and I didn't have that. And then I was in school, and I was hanging around with these godly professors, and not so godly guys, but at least the guys were trying to, to follow God in, in their life, right? And so, that walking in His ways comes down to us, and if you really want to do that, and it's a real struggle for you, Check your surroundings. Okay? Because some things may have to change. I had to have a radical change in my life. I stopped listening to the kind of music that I'd been listening to because every song that I heard had a drug connotation to me. So, it just, you know, we can look at the drug stuff and go, well, you know, that's that. But the route, that's how sin is for us. And we make ourselves comfortable in our little slice of sin, typically. And then we build a world around that. And then we face that discipline that John's talking about. And the Holy Spirit within us just cannot allow us, will not allow us to be comfortable with that lifestyle. And so it keeps hammering on us, if you will. Okay, so having said all of that, let's come back to balance and we'll close. Mention the prosperity gospel. You know what that is? Okay, you know, just... God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be successful. And then interesting, well, let me ask you, what's wrong with that theology? Short-sighted. Short-sighted. The world, I heard, I think, can't serve both, what, God and mammon. Okay, let's go ahead and yeah, quote Jesus. That's a good thing to do all the time. So that's falling off the horse one side. I'll come back to that in just a second. What's wrong with the desert fathers and that whole thing about just going out into the wilderness and living the Christian life there? So they spread the word of God to okay. You have to jump over multiple passages of Scripture in order to justify that, right? Because God calls us to be ambassadors for Christ. He calls us. No. 
salt and light, all of those kind of things, right? I would suggest to you, and I'm not happy on either one of those two, although it wouldn't be hard for me to do. Uh, I don't want it to be that tonight. I would suggest to you that the Desert Fathers had the same problem that prosperity gospel has. And that is a reduce the Christian life to what's beneficial for me. Now, hear me very carefully. This has fallen off of the horse on either side. The key is motive. We just went through an entire psalm where the psalmist is saying, God's going to bless you. A lot of the prosperity gospel that's out there. Now, we're talking about doing good theology now, right? So a lot of that prosperity gospel that's out there promises the very things that our society wants. God wants you to be successful. God wants you to have a great job. God wants you to be powerful. God wants you to have riches and all of those kind of things. Go back to that lady and that, uh, and that uh, evangelist. One of the things that just drove that guy, I, I did some research. I told this friend of mine, church member, that I would research that guy. And I did pretty good research on him. And uh, <laughs> um, he's just not for money. I mean, I, I hate to assign motive to somebody else, but I don't know how you can come up with any other motive in looking at how he handles people, and especially people who want to follow God, at least at the, at the beginning. And so it's, it's just this digging in the claws and saying, this is about me, not about you. And it reaches to people who say, it's about me, not about anybody else. And so when in dealing with all of that, let me just put it, show you how easy it is for us to fall into that trap. We were with our daughter. You're going to get tired. I, I, I know you're getting tired of hearing about my two and a half year old grandson, so I'm going, to, I'm going to let that kind of filter out a little bit pretty soon. But uh, there's, there's just so much spiritual truth to see in a two and a half year old. Most of it's not good. <laughs> But I heard on more than one occasion, either one of his parents say, uh, if you'll do this, then I'll get you some pizza. If you'll do this, then we'll have some ice cream. Do you want ice cream? Okay, then do this. Right? That's bribery, first of all. Uh, my parents knew that a good whack across the... Well, anyway, that's another thing. Be careful about that these days. <laughs> I think the Achilles heel of the prosperity gospel or that desert monasticism kind of thing is ultimately that it shows a lack of fear of God. It is an arrangement with God. I'll do this and then you have to pay me for that. I don't think that shows fear of God at all. I think that's a business transaction. And I think God's not in the business of making business transactions with us necessarily. So let me just put it right down on the bottom shelf where we live. I hope that you listen in our worship services when we pray. Do you do? I hope you listen. I know you're supposed to pray too. I'm all for that. But especially for the offertory prayer. I like, I like giving good illustrations here. And one of the things that I think you hear consistently 
Uh, I know from Edgardo, he's the one who prayed this morning. I was a little more attuned to listening. And, um, but I know he does it on a regular basis. I try to do this when I pray. I, I think I find this across the board with our ministers who pray offertory prayers. Very rarely, if ever, will you hear us say in a prayer uh, something about you having to do this. A lot of times, I'm going to be careful about it. I know this is not a stewardship sermon or anything like that. If it was, the finance committee would not like me. A lot of times, churches and pastors beat people over the head about tithing and about giving, saying, you know, you have to do this. You know, I mean, after all, Scripture teaches. And I'm all for Scripture. I hope you know me well enough by now to know that. If you'll listen to our offertory prayers, what you will regularly hear is our ministerial staff saying, God, we do this because you're worthy. We do this as a response to your blessing us. We do this as a response to who you are and the claims that you make on our lives. We give because it's the right thing to do, not because some religious person is holding a bat over our heads saying, you have to give or God's not going to be happy. Okay? So be careful to stay on the horse when it comes to seeking the blessing of God. This is the, the whole psalm in a nutshell. Be careful that you don't just seek the blessing and miss the blesser. I think many times we slip into a mode where we're seeking the blessing. But we ought to be seeking the blesser. And the blessings will roll according to this song. God bless you. Hope you had a great week. Thank you for being here. Let's pray. We'll go. And so, Lord, we once again, we come to the end of a just a brief look into your word, and we are amazed at the depth of what you have to teach us in just a handful of words. Help us, please help us, to focus on you, to live our lives as a response to your holiness, as a response to your grace and mercy. Help us to live our lives in full awareness of how incredible you are. And if you choose to bless us, fine. And thank you. If you choose not to bless us, then we are still blessed because we get the fundamental part of life right when we live lives of worship before you. So thank you for the opportunity in Jesus' name. Thank you.